Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 is our text. This is God's word. Listen carefully, reverently, as I read. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Please uh, pray with me. Lord, we uh, covet your presence with us now. We know you are present with us now, um, but we covet your your assistance for me <clears throat> as I expound this portion of your word, that you would help me to do it in a way that accurately reflects what you intended uh, in terms of its meaning. And we pray, Lord, that we would be... Uh, that we would be that we would be thankful ever more so as a result of the truths that we learn from this passage and that it would cause us to desire to honor you even more so uh, in in our lives as a result of our time here we ask it in Jesus name amen all right so kids um, I want to give you an example of something uh, that uh, to help you understand what the sermon is going to be about here. So, there are different circumstances that we face in our life that um, create different situations for us. Now, I'll just give you an example or two of this, okay? So, let's just take the weather. So, you remember when we had that ice storm a few weeks back? Remember? 
what that was like? It's pretty interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Now, before that ice storm, or excuse me, let's say in the middle of that ice storm, when we had that ice storm, that storm produced circumstances that really affected all of us, right? Really changed a lot of things. Some of you, like we did, might have had to wear a coat in your house. We did in our house because our power went off for days, a day and a half, two days, whatever it was. But we got really cold in our house. So we had to wear coats. And I don't know about you, but we didn't have any running water at our house. We turned the taps on and nothing came out. It was really kind of difficult because we couldn't take showers. We couldn't flush our toilets. It was not fun. Those circumstances changed uh, things quite, quite uh, significantly for us. But then after the sun came out and the temperatures went up and people started getting out and the water started running and the heater started working, things were quite different in after about a week or so. I think it took about a week to get back to normal. But things got back to normal and life was much different than it was that previous week when it when it got down to zero degrees, when there was ice all over the place. Nobody was out on the roads. There was no power, no water, at least here in Lufkin. Uh, it, was, it was quite amazing, the difference. It was black and white kind of. I give you that example because it's sort of a little bit like the situation between the Old Testament age, especially from Moses' day onward until Jesus came, and the New Testament age. Circumstances are quite different in this time, the day that we live, this side of the cross, when Jesus has already risen from the dead, versus when, when the Old Testament believers lived. Life was very different. Religious life was very different for them than it is for us. Circumstances, the circumstance of Jesus coming and doing his uh, atoning work on the cross, actually his life and his death on the cross and then his resurrection, that changed things radically. And that changed things for the church, quite radically, actually. And this passage that we're looking at talks about uh, that quite radical change between the Old Testament believer's situation um, and the church and in the Old Testament and the situation now in the church in the New Testament, much like that ice storm when it went away changed things, well, either side of the ice storm <laughs> and the ice storm. So, let me, uh, let me, I didn't read verse 29 of chapter uh, 3, but I'm going to read it now because I want to use that as a way of introducing uh, the contents of uh, the first seven verses of chapter 4. He said in verse 29, he said, And if you belong to Christ, that is, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are in Christ spiritually, spiritually united him by having put your trust in him as your only hope of being forgiven and going to heaven, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and here's the key word, heirs according to promise. Now, again, I'm not going to repeat exactly what Paul just said, but he just he said, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer like Abraham, 
even though Abraham lived 2,000 years before Paul wrote this, and 4,000 years from our day and age, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, um, then you are an heir, like Abraham was an heir. You are an heir according to promise, if you are a believer in Jesus, because Abraham and you and I believe in the same Jesus and the same Savior. And when he says that uh, we are heirs according to promise, what he is referring to there is referring to the covenant promises that God, in fact, made to Abraham 2,000 years prior to Paul's writing of this letter and promises which are alluded to in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3. Let's look there, because I do want to read those verses. But these... And he doesn't, he doesn't unpack all the promises, but he refers to them again, uh, or earlier on, uh, and that's what, uh, the same promises that verse 29 are speaking of. So let's look at verse, uh, 16 of chapter 3, and I'll read through verse 18. Um, now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. There we go. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he's, of course, he's talking about spiritual seed there as we know from what Paul says in Romans 9. And now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. And then he says this, what I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. It does not do that. The law, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai did not do that. It did not invalidate the covenant, uh, the covenant previously ratified by God, in other words, with Abraham, so as to nullify the promises that were made in that covenant. And then he says, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But, and that's a very important but, God has granted it to Abraham, and he doesn't say this, but it's implied, and to us, by means of a promise. And then, verse 29, we are heirs according to promise. What promise? The promise is given to Abraham. We're heirs to those same promises. Okay, so that brings me, uh, so, and those promises were spiritual, promises of spiritual blessing. Promises of spiritual blessing. It was never ultimately about the land. Abraham never got the land. Other than the parcel that he bought for, uh, uh, from the sons of Heth for, uh, Sarah's, uh, burial place. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't possess that land. It was never about the land ultimately. Although the land was a, a type. But it was, they were spiritual blessings. Promises of spiritual blessings. Blessings which he received in response to his faith in the then future Messiah, who was described as his seed, his offspring, many, many generations down the line before it came to to Jesus, but still his offspring. And Paul is indicating in verse 29 of chapter 3 that those who are in the new covenant are recipients of the same spiritual blessings that God promised to Abraham. Okay, so that's all by way of introduction. But what about... What about believers who, what about Old Testament believers who weren't Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? And especially what about Old Testament believers who lived between Abraham's day and 
the New Covenant Age, which is the one we're in. What about that 2,000 years of church history? What about all those folks in the Old Testament church? That's where this passage we are looking at here in verse 4, chapter 4, comes in. Uh, uh, that's where it instructs us. It instructs us on this issue. Uh, two points we're going to look at. Uh, I'm going to highlight for you from this uh, these seven verses. The first is this. We're going to look at the circumstances under which the Old Testament church labored. And I use that word labored intentionally. And secondly, we're going to look at the circumstances under which the New Testament church lives. Circumstances under which the Old Testament church labored and the circumstances under which the New Testament church lives, now lives, I should say. Look at that more in detail now. So first, let's look at what um, Paul says about the circumstances under which the Old Testament church. And I'm, in many ways, I'm speaking uh, about the church from Moses to to Jesus, but there's another sense in which I'm really speaking about the church from Adam to Jesus. Um, uh, more specifically to the the last two thousand years prior to Jesus coming, but really you could you can in many ways uh, co- cover the whole age of of human history up until the time of Jesus yeah, under this category of the Old Testament church. So what were the circumstances? Well, we are told uh, by Paul he makes a comparison, an analogy in verse one. He basically compares the church of the Old Testament period, especially the Mosaic period from Moses onward to an heir, a male heir, of a sizable inheritance. So he starts out in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, there he's referring to the Old Testament church, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ, that child does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. He doesn't differ from the slave, is what he says. That heir, that uh, heir to a, to a fortune. Um, so he's drawing this analogy from the ancient world, and he compares the church uh, uh, that existed prior to the first coming of Jesus to earth, prior to his incarnation, to the son of a wealthy man, uh, a son who is an heir to his father's great fortune. But he goes further than just, just comparing him to an heir of a, of a fortune. The, the comparison is more specific than just a male heir. He, he compares the Old Testament church specifically to a male heir who is still a minor, legally speaking. That is to say, this heir that is, the, that is analogous to the Old Testament church is a youth, a young boy, who has not yet come into possession of his inheritance. He has no control over his inheritance. It, it effectively doesn't belong to him, practically speaking. Um, he hasn't come into possession of it. Why? On account of his chronological immaturity. Again, now I say, as long as uh, he is, an, uh, wait, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, there's the minority part, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's a, the owner of everything compares him to a child. You see, the Old Testament church, of the, the church of the Old Covenant, I guess, which is really a reference to the Mosaic Covenant, but uh, um, it kind of applies to both. 
The church of the Old Testament was like such a boy, heir, um, who didn't have control of any of his possessions, of his inheritance, and was in many ways like the slave who may have lived, who his father may have owned, that worked in his household. That they're, they're, in many ways their, their positions didn't differ to speak of in certain ways. And then Paul, in verse 2, explains what he means by this comparison. So now he's going to unpack it a little bit. What, do, what does he mean uh, by comparing him to a, a boy heir? He says, he, uh, the heir, but of course he's comparing it, he's saying this about the Old Testament church, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. He's saying this about the Old Testament church. He's saying the Old Testament church, like the young heir, was young and immature. Is probably more the uh, more the emphasis there. Immature, uh, not ready to inherit. That's maybe even a better way to put it. Like like a child heir is not ready to inherit the responsibilities and what have you of of the of the, of the riches that are that are his one day promised to him. And the church was was not ready. It was immature. The boy was young and immature in terms of age. But the Old Testament church was young and immature, spiritually speaking. Covenantally speaking, perhaps, you might say, as well. She was placed, we are told by Paul, under, uh, like a boy, like the boy is placed under guardians, the church was placed under guardians and managers under the old covenant until the date set by the father, the father of the boy, but the father of the boy, of course, is a picture of God the father. And so until the date set by God the father, the church was under guardians and managers, and those guardians and managers presumably included the kings, the priests, uh, the prophets, uh, of the Old Testament church, and perhaps the patriarchs as well, of the Old Testament church. These were uh, provisional uh, supervisors, if I will. I'm not sure that's the word I want, but uh, caretakers of the Old Testament people of God in their, in their immaturity. And God placed them there. God the Father did. The kings, who were types, not the real king, but they were types of the true king. Uh, the the priests, they were types of the true priest who was yet to come. The prophets, who were true, who were who were uh, types of the true prophet who was yet to come. But when the father determined the that the church was of age spiritually, he would be allowed. Uh, uh, he would allow her then, the church, to take possession of the fullness, shall we say, of the covenant blessings that he intended for her to have, ultimately, in her maturity. Prior to the coming of Christ, Jesus to earth, and the completion of his atoning work, his cross work, prior to that point in time, however, the church's status was analogous to that of an underage heir, to a huge fortune. And as an heir, who was still a spiritual minor, the church's condition did not differ appreciably 
from that of a slave in some respects, much like the heir, the heir of a rich uh, fortune, uh, the, of a great fortune who is uh, underage, didn't differ much from the slave in that same household. The church was in, in some sense, uh, uh, a kind of servile position in the Old Testament situation. And Paul declares that the church's members were in, in effect, in a state of bondage of sorts. Verse 3, so also we, and here, here he means we Jews, Paul's speaking as a Jew here at this point, so also we, we Jews, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. There was a type of there was a type of uh, servanthood that was that was um, humbling, shall we say? That was the church's lot under the old covenant. And this bondage, this uh, servile condition, was due to what he describes here as elemental things of the world. Now, what I am convinced that is a reference to, and I won't get into the reasons why, uh, but what I think Paul is talking about there is he's referring to all of the burdensome and tedious ceremonies that were central to the Old Testament worship of God. The numerous sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, yearly sacrifices, the, the onerous uh, purity laws that always having to, to keep ceremonially cute, uh, clean. And then when we get unclean, it was real easy to get unclean. You had to get clean again, ceremonially speaking. And you had to go through a whole ritual to get that taken care of. The elaborate, uh, the elaborate rituals involving that cleaning. The, the regularly required pilgrimages three times a year of the men had to, no matter where they were, they had to get up to Jerusalem for that pilgrimage. And such things. So it would include those ceremonial, those ceremonies, those, those burdens. Uh, and also the elemental things of the world would, I would say, would also include the various types and shadows, uh, of Christ that characterized Israel's organization as a, as a church and as a nation. They were under a monarchy, they were under a monarchy. They had priestly mediators, human mediators. Uh, they had the prophetic office and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, through these things, they were, in a, in a sense, kept at, at a distance from God by these offices and these mediators uh, that, if you will, stood in the way between them and God. There was a type of uh, um, bondage that that produced, spiritually speaking. Now, not not don't don't get me wrong. It was not. It was not um, um, a, uh, uh, what's the word? It was not a horrible thing to be an Old Testament believer. That's not what I'm getting at. It was just different. And it wasn't as um, freeing, perhaps, or free, put it that way, as our situation is, which I'm getting to here in a moment. But anyway, the Old Covenant people were compelled to labor, if you will, under these various demanding and they were quite demanding, divine requirements for as long as their Father in Heaven believed it was expedient for them to do so, which, as it turns out, was some couple thousand years. Either two or four, depending on how you do the math and where things begin. 
That was the Old Testament saints' situation. It was good. It was blessed. Uh, it was uh, it was much to be preferred from what the pagans were experiencing. And God loved them, and God was did indeed bless them. But it wasn't the same as our lot. Paul, as as he says in verse four, when the date to which he referred in verse two arrived. The church's circumstances changed, and much for the better. You recall, the writer of the Hebrews refers about a better covenant and better promises. Uh, Better, better, better. You hear that word repeated a number of occasions in the new, uh, in Hebrews in particular. And indeed, the new covenant and the circumstances under which we live at this time in redemptive history are better. And that's the second point. The circumstances we're going to look at briefly here in the remainder of our time, the circumstances under which the New Testament church now lives. And it's not laborious, uh, as in some sense the Old Testament church's circumstances were to a degree at least. Ours are not laborious. For one, you are no longer under the condemnation of the law covenant. Uh, He says in verse 5, uh, I'll re- start with verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. You and I, uh, but let me say this before I say anything more. We, Paul is not referring here. He is not referring to, in that verse that I just read, those two verses, he's not referring to the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. That's not what he's referring to here, which Old Testament believers, believers, were under. They were under the uh, Mosaic, this is the way we Presbyterians put it, the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. It was a part of the covenant of grace. And this is, that is not what Paul is referring to here when he says, speaks about they were under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. Many poorly instructed, um, well-meaning, but I would suggest uh, humbly poorly instructed uh, believers think that the Mosaic Covenant or the uh, Mosaic Administration of the Covenant of Grace, however you put that, was fundamentally a covenant of law. That's what they would say. It was fundamentally a covenant of law, not of grace. We do not believe that is the case. We do not believe that's what Scripture teaches. Now, the Old Covenant did... Uh, contain a significant legal component to it, we'll put it that way. But the Old Covenant was fundamentally, uh, the Mosaic Covenant was fundamentally a gracious covenant. The Law Covenant that Paul is referring to here in verses five, uh, 4 and 5, when he speaks of being under law, Jesus being under law, and in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, in verse 5, that law covenant that I'm referring to, and that Paul is, refer- is the one that Paul is referring to, is the one made with Adam before the fall, in his capacity as the head of the entire human race. The covenant of works, in other words, which is what we normally refer to it as. That's the law covenant referred to here. And we, by God's grace, are no longer under the condemnation of that covenant of works. 
if we are spiritually united to Jesus by faith, if we are trusting in Jesus alone to save us from our sins, to make us right with God, to bring us safely home to heaven, and to um, and to uh, 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 prevent the possibility of us going to hell for our sins, which we deserve. Um, that condemnation that the law calls for, the law covenant, the uh, the covenant of works calls for, we do not get because we are under the new covenant and we are parties to it. Secondly, not only are we uh, no longer under the condemnation of the covenant of works, but you and I have been adopted by God as royal sons and daughters. Again, in order, verse 5, in order that he might redeem, Jesus might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons or daughters if you're a young lady or or young at heart. <laughs> um, that is our status. That is our status. We are royalty. We are royalty. We are uh, sons and daughters of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And that is because we are in covenant with him uh, or, uh, through, his, uh, through our union with his son. Uh, yes, through our spiritual union with his son. We partake of, we are now members of his family. Um, and that is true. And that was true also of Old Testament saints. I uh, don't want to imply that that was not true of Old Testament saints. And, indeed, the uh, Old Testament saints ultimately were not under condemnation of the law covenant for the same reason that we are not. They were trusting in the covenant mediator. They didn't know he was going to be Jesus born in Nazareth but they knew of uh, the coming Messiah and their hope was in him, and they too uh, were not under condemnation. Uh, but it is much more obvious in the New Covenant era that the, we have much more revelation that makes this much more obvious to us, and we hear much more about it. Thirdly, circumstances under the New Covenant uh, uh, in which the New Church, uh, New Testament Church now lives, uh, not only no condemnation, not only adopted by God as, as his royal children, but you are also have the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Holy Spirit, residing within your heart and blessing you uh, in ways uh, that, were, that were not true uh, under the Old Testament. Uh, the giftings of the Old Testament uh, that we have in the New Testament age are, not, uh, are greater than they were for the Old Testament saints because of what the Holy Spirit is now doing in our hearts. And as a, and verse six makes that point. And because you are sons, so here's the uh, follow up from the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." Uh, as a result of the Spirit's presence within us, uh, you and I are no longer living like slaves, uh, like our Old Testament uh, brethren were in the Old Testament church, uh, but we are now living like heirs who have entered into, have uh, uh, received the fullness of our inheritance. We are not at that place in redemptive history as they are. We are at a better place in redemptive history than our Old Testament brethren. We have, um, we have come into our uh, inheritance. We are in possessors of it, and we enjoy it in its fullness and are no longer um, uh, minors in our minority, if you will like our Old Testament brethren were. And because uh, we have taken possession of the full measure of the blessings promised, uh, 
by our Heavenly Father in the covenant of grace, uh, we are in a better place. And then, uh, verse 4 speaks of yet one other point that I want to make, and that is that this covenant of grace, uh, that we are in the fullest expression of in the new covenant age, uh, this covenant uh, is a covenant, the covenant of grace, all of whose various administrations, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Noahic, the Davidic, and the new, all those various administrations were made effectual uh, in the, uh, the, were made effectual as a result of the Father's sending of his Son. That is why the covenants brought the blessings that they did, uh, all of which were covenant of grace uh, administrations. Verse 4. Um, but when the fullness of time came, he's comparing the Old Testament world with the New Testament time, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus fulfilled uh, the terms and the conditions of the covenant of grace by fulfilling the covenant of works. He was born like we were as a human, uh, so that he could add, he could represent us by being one of us. He was born under the law. What was that law? The law, the covenant of works, is the law he was born. Yes, he was born also under the Mosaic law, but, but that's not the reference here. It's to the covenant of works. And Jesus, unlike the first Adam under the covenant of works, Jesus fully obeyed all of that covenant's terms. And as a result of having fulfilled all of the demands of, the, of God's uh, covenant of uh, law, demands that, for perfect obedience, demands that uh, disobedience be punished by death, eternal death, because Jesus fulfilled those demands, he was able to redeem and did redeem those of us who are under, uh, were under that law covenant, that covenant of works, prior to our conversion, um, uh, whom he wished to make objects of his marvelous grace. Uh, and Jesus caused those covenants to be effectual for all of us, in all ages, not just the new. Yes, the new is the most blessed uh, expression of the covenant of works, but the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, uh, Elijah, uh, David, um, I want to go further back, Enoch, there we go, Methuselah, uh, Shelah, Arpachshad, all those guys, um, Seth and so on, they all received the blessings promised in the covenant of grace, regardless of the administration, because Jesus fulfilled that covenant for us. And we are the recipients of the blessings that flow from his crosswork. And... Um, it's especially blessed that we are on this side of the cross because we don't have the ceremonial baggage of the Old Testament. We don't have mere types and shadows. We have the reality uh, that those uh, types and shadows bespoke. And uh, we have it all. We are most blessed. Most blessed. Let's give God thanks, shall we? Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you that we are um, have been born in this most propitious age uh, of the new co- the new covenant age. 
We thank you that um, though it was a blessing to be an Old Testament saint, that um, some of the uh, some of the burden that they experienced in that blessedness, we don't experience anything of. We are grateful, Lord, uh, for the uh, great liberty that we enjoy as as uh, Christians. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace by fulfilling the covenant of works, and you did that all for us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for uh, your your most gracious dealings with us, providential dealings. And we ask, Lord, that as we go out into this week, that we would ponder the blessed state that we find ourselves in, the blessed time that we find ourselves in, in spite of what's whirling around us in the world. In terms of the history of redemption, this is a blessed time. And we need to be mindful of that. Would you please help us to go forth in this week, living a life that expresses thanks to you for your your kindness and your mercy shown to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.